Hi and welcome to the Mount Hamilton Baptist Church podcast. We hope you enjoy listening to this message. For more information, go to mhbc.ca. A reading from God's Holy Word from the Gospel of Matthew, uh, chapter 8, verses 5 to 13. You'll find this on page 788 in the Pew Bible. This passage is entitled, The Faith of the Centurion. When Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him asking for help. Lord, he said, my servant lies at home paralyzed, suffering terribly. Jesus said to him, shall I come and heal him? The centurion replied, Lord, I do not deserve to have you come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority, with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes, and that one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed and said to those following him, truly, I tell you, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then Jesus said to the centurion, go, let it be done just as you believed it would. And his servant was healed at that moment. This is the word of the Lord. Well, thanks, Wayne. Taking me a second here to get my ducks in order up here. So that reading was from Matthew. Big surprise for those of you who have been here for the last months. You know we've been talking about scripture throughout Matthew. This story, however, is also found in Luke. And if you would like to look that up at some point to read it and see what Luke has to say about this story, it's in chapter 7, verses 1 to 10. This story about the centurion takes place right after the Sermon on the Mount, which we talked about earlier this year. The Sermon on the Mount Mount was a, a, a large passage of scripture where Jesus is teaching his disciples. Now he is coming back into the city of Capernaum, which is his home city, and he's beginning to or continuing to show his authority in light of his teachings. First, he deals with a leper, healing a leper, which shows authority over um, physical condition. Jesus is always reaching to the marginalized. Then he engages with this Roman centurion soldier, who's a Gentile, who's not Jewish, and and he shows his authority where race is concerned, and then he goes on to deal with gender. So we're going to just walk through the story a little bit first, a little bit slower, and kind of flesh out some of the things that we just heard. So Jesus goes back to Capernaum, which I said is his home city, and he engages a centurion. Now you may be wondering, what is a centurion? A centurion is a Roman soldier. 
And this Roman soldier came to him asking for help. Lord, he said, or sir, he said, my servant lies at home. He's paralyzed. He's suffering greatly. Jesus is Jewish, and Jesus' followers are Jewish. You can take that down, Andy, actually. Thanks. Um, Jesus is Jewish, and his followers are Jewish. And he had moved about teaching and healing the sick. Um, and so when he comes, comes into town and the centurion soldier sees him, he approaches him. The centurion soldier is part of the Roman Empire's army. They are the ones who enforce everything in the land. And the Roman Empire was a large piece of the known world at that time. They were not friends with the Jews. They were enforcers of the law, the Roman law, the Roman way. And often they oppressed the Jews, who lived in little pockets within the boundaries of this empire. He's a Gentile, that is, he's not Jewish. He may have been from Rome, or even from Syria, or even from Lebanon, which is really interesting for those of you who are familiar with the work we're doing in Lebanon now. It was very odd that this powerful man would approach a Jewish teacher. And it was also very odd that he would be caring about his servant. In the Roman culture, a servant really didn't have any value. They weren't considered important. And if they were suffering, it was to no matter to their master. When they were sick, there's writing that show it was recommended that they just set them aside and get someone new. But this Roman centurion was different. He was compassionate, he was kind, and perhaps Jesus was moved by that. So Jesus said to him, shall I come and heal him? The centurion replied, Lord, I do not deserve to have you come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. Lord, I do not deserve. Now, while it's true that if a Jewish person went into a Gentile home, they would become ritually unclean, there is a sense here that the Roman centurion is holding Jesus to a higher authority when he says, I am not worthy. He has a spirit of humility and trust when he says, just say the word. And he goes on to talk about how he is a man under authority with soldiers under him, how he says to go and they go, and he says to his servants, do this and they do this. He gets authority, and he tells Jesus he gets authority. He himself is under authority in the ranks of his position. He is vigilant in following orders. He has to be as a Roman centurion, but he's also a leader to others. He has 80 men in his stead. And to, them, to those people, he is the authority. So he understands how authority is. But in the path of Jesus, he recognizes his unworthiness, and he knows that Jesus' authority somehow exceeds all of his. So Jesus responds, and I'm going to read the response from a different translation called The Message, because I think it really encapsulates the feel for us today. Taken aback, Jesus said, I've yet to come across this kind of simple trust in Israel, the very people who are supposed to know all about God and how he works. 
This man is the vanguard, or, or leading the way. This man is the vanguard of many outsiders who will soon be coming from all directions, streaming in from the east, pouring in from the west, sitting down at God's kingdom banquet alongside Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Then those who grew up in the faith but had no faith will find themselves out in the cold, outsiders to grace and wondering what happened. To those Jewish people hearing this, this was unbelievable. All along, they thought the kingdom of heaven was just for them. And now the tables were turned. Jesus was saying that the Roman centurion would be part of the God's kingdom and some of their own Jewish people would be shut out. God's kingdom reaches people of all sorts, and we know that now. But to the original people in this story, that was, that was not common understanding. God's kingdom reaches to people of all sorts, people of different races. And then Jesus said to the centurion, go, it'll be done just as you believed, and, the, and his soldier was healed. So we have the centurion and we have Jesus. So Andy, can you put that first picture up of the centurion? Oh, they came up together. So here we have the centurion on the left, and he's kind of a mean-looking guy. <laughs> um, centurion soldiers were strong and fit. They had to be a little bit older, so he had to be over 30 years of age to hold this position. He had to have prosperity, enough at least to own his own tent, and own his own horse to take it into battle. He had to be strong and courageous and have sword skills and other skills in battle. He had to be able to train and lead 80 men, so he had authority. And the red plume on the top of his hat uh, is facing the direction it is intentionally. The rank below him, it faced this way, so he would be less visible. But the plume going across, the red plume, was to identify him as the leader, the one in authority. So when they're in battle, everyone knew who was in charge. So I suppose that would be a good thing if you were one of his soldiers and you could look and find your leader, but perhaps not such a great thing when you're in battle. <laughs> be a pretty good target on... Maybe that's the expression, put a target on your head. There you go. You're welcome. <laughs> Just thought of that. And then we have Jesus. Now, Jesus had been gaining a following of people in his travels as he taught and as he healed people. Jesus was Jewish compared to the Roman centurions being a Gentile. Jesus had absolutely no status in, Roman, in the Roman Empire. He was meek and a humble man. And while he had great authority as being God's son, he had no Roman Empire authority. So, you know, when Leanne and I were um, talking about all the accounts in Matthew that weren't touched this year, this was one of the ones that came up as we were going through Matthew. And as soon as I heard it, I got really excited. Um, because I love this story. Because I love how this powerful soldier laid it all down and went to a humble Jewish teacher for help. And after I spent time studying the text and, and doing the work that you do and preparing a sermon, it just continued to be a highlight, and I had to share this with you. This action of humility is unusual for a Roman soldier, especially a, 
a Roman, especially a soldier. He approached Jesus, but he didn't use his power. He didn't, he didn't go to Jesus and coerce him. He didn't go to Jesus and threaten him to heal his servant. He didn't demand that he do it. He didn't use any of his authority. In fact, he set his authority aside, and he approached Jesus with humility. John Stott, a famous theologian, once said, Pride is your greatest enemy. Humility is your greatest friend. Pride and humility. Now, there's a topic that we don't want to talk about. But before we go any further, I want you to just stop and think a second about a few things, just as an immediate reaction to what you think about pride and humility. I'm going to ask you a couple questions. So when you think of pride and humility, what words come to your mind? Can you think of someone in your life who you consider particularly proud or particularly humble? What about that person makes you think that? Is it, is it things that they do? Is it things that they say? Is it attitudes they have? Can you think of unseen things related to pride and humility? Things that are under the surface of a person's actions. Now historically, pride was considered one of the deadliest vices, but now it's almost celebrated as a virtue in our culture. But before you say I'm wrong and pride isn't a bad thing, just hear me out. If God has given you gifts and God has given you abilities, be grateful. You can still be proud of getting a good mark on an exam. You can be proud of winning your soccer game. You can be proud of learning a new skill. You can be proud of excelling at work or playing an instrument. And you can be proud of your kids. If that's your reality, embrace it and be grateful for it. Unfortunately, pride is a dark side. Pride can easily go off the rails. It can take one of those good things I just listed and twist it and influence it and change how we see ourselves, how we interact with others, and how we relate to God. The scariest part is, is we rarely can see pride in ourselves. It lurks below the surface, and unless we pay attention, we will miss it. Perhaps we have physical strength or emotional stability, and maybe we think more highly of ourselves than others because of that and don't even realize it. We may unknowingly use any power or authority or privilege we have to take advantage of someone else, maybe at work or at home or on the street or with your friends, and maybe it's very subtle. Or maybe it isn't something you do, but it's an attitude you carry about people who are different than you. Perhaps we think we are self-sustaining, that we really don't need God in our lives because we have it all together. And we certainly don't need other people. We certainly don't need other people's help. We're just fine. Thank you very much. Maybe we went to a wedding one time, and you were seated at the back of the room, and you knew that you belonged way closer to the front. Or you were at a business, business event and you were being introduced as the speaker. And the person who introduced you failed to mention so many of your accomplishments that you wanted people to know about. We may desire our status to be acknowledged because down deep, 
we want others to know how good we really are. When we win or are exceptional at something, it's true, we succeeded. But what happens inside of us? Do we become puffed up? Do we want to be with others of our caliber? Do we look down our nose at those who can't or don't measure up? Our culture says, have it all, please yourself. Authors write, be capable, believe in yourself. Speakers speak, be self-reliant, fulfill yourself. Pride says, be superior, think more of yourself. And Jesus says, be wise, humble yourself. Humility doesn't mean weakness. Humility doesn't mean mediocrity. As Jesus followers, humility is a posture that we take. It's like, more like an attitude that we have. It's a heart position, and that heart position influences our thinking, our loving, our behaving. It influences so much. Growing in humility doesn't come quickly, and it is a bit painful, but we know if Jesus teaches it, it is a better way. So how do you even define humility? The dictionary says it's a modest opinion of one's own importance or rank or status, etc. Holding a posture that you're not more important or less important than you really are, that you don't have more value or less value than anybody else. Humility is a key characteristic in the Christian faith, and it's found in Scripture in different ways. We find it in many, many accounts of stories of people in the Bible, and we also find it in flat-out teachings on humility. Of course, the greatest example of humility in the whole Bible is Jesus himself. Jesus existed for all time and then took on human flesh, came to this world as a, as a vulnerable baby, walked and lived in our broken human world. He was a servant to humans and then humbled himself even to death on a cross. Humbled himself to die, to take on the sin of the world. He taught us and showed us what humility looks like. He showed us what being a servant to others looks like. And just as he was exalted for his humility and his death, by being raised again and ascending, those who are humble will also be exalted in the end. Now, if you're not convinced about this posture of humility, you may be surprised that, um, as I was surprised, to know that non-church uh, research studies and social sciences are approving Jesus' teachings. I thought that was pretty cool. While the Bible may not be embraced by everyone, the Jesus way of humility is being recognized in our culture, and I love to see this happen. They're doing research, um, social sciences are doing research, and it's showing that when it's understood well, humility is a valuable trait and is linked with better performance in school, in work, and in leadership. The research is showing that humble people are aware of their limitations, and they are not just self-focused, but they're other-focused too. It says they avoid deception, they have better relationships, they're forgiving and grateful, cooperative and generous with time and money. And I didn't make up any of those words, it was actually all in this um, Psychology Today article. It's totally legit. <laughs> Turns out the Jesus way is a better way and it's proving itself wherever it goes. Now, 
as I was preparing for this sermon, I discovered that it was hard to kind of pin down what humility is. Like, what is humility? It's easy to define humility in what we see people doing or we think a humble act is. But humility itself, I find, is a little bit hard to put your finger on. So how do we even begin to look at our own lives in light of this important teaching? When Jesus called men and women to be humble, to humble themselves, the Greek word was tapenos. And it was, it was a word that conveyed the idea of having a right view of ourselves. Having a right view of ourselves. That's a right view of ourselves in relation to who we are, in relation to God in this world. A right view of how we should engage with others. And a right view of who we are, like just as ourselves. First, having a right view of ourself includes considering, our, considering who we are in light of our place in the world and with God. We are God's creation. But we live in a broken world and we're human. We're actually pretty weak, and we're pretty dependent. We have bodies that fail. We have limited intelligence and limited abilities. We're prone to sin and error. We will die, and we will face God's judgment. We may think much of ourselves, but we are not gods. We are vulnerable humans living in a beautiful yet broken world. But we are also God's children. We were created with amazing bodies. We are endlessly loved by our Creator. We are forgiven and we are redeemed by our gracious Father, by His grace. And in our weakness, His love is always there and He carries us. And any gifts we have, any resources we have, all these things that we consider are ours are really gifts from God. And they're to be used for His kingdom and to serve others. We're actually pretty weak and small. God, however, is not. He is the creator, he is the sustainer, and the source of all that is good. He's always with us. But if we think about a map of Hamilton, and we think what a speck we are on that map, or we think of a map of Canada, what a speck we are on that map, or a map of this world, well, you know, there's not even a speck, right? So anything good that we have, we just have to be grateful to God. Second, having a right view of ourselves includes knowing how we are to rightly see others. And so we're going to join together and uh, read this scripture from Philippians 2. Please join me. Don't do anything for selfish purposes, but with humility, think of others as better than yourselves. Instead of each person watching out for their own good, watch out for what is better for others. Having a right view of ourselves places us as thinking of others better than ourselves. That is, stepping out of the way and watching out for others, taking a back seat. This is a posture of our heart that is lived out in action. Third, having a right view of ourselves includes knowing who we really are, not thinking too much or too little of ourselves. Let's read Romans. <clears throat> For by the grace given me, I say to everyone...
And the text that continues beyond there talks about gifts and how we can use our gifts to serve one another. Having a right view of ourselves understands who our true self is. It's not thinking more highly of ourselves or more lowly of ourselves. It's not the self we wish we were. It's not the self others tell us we are. It's not the self we pretend to be. It's just really honestly ourselves as God, God's created children living in a glorious and messy world with others. Many of Jesus' teachings actually require that we embrace these three things. That if we can see ourselves for who we are really, in light of God, in light of one another, and in light of truth, true honesty with ourselves, we can engage in practices that help us practice humility, that require humility. Lots of teachings of Jesus require humility, but I've picked three to share. Practices you can do to engage the idea of humility. Practices that require humility just to do them. The first one is confession. Confession is stopping and thinking of your day or your week and being honest about the times you fell short, the times you sinned, the times that you said or thought or did things that you shouldn't have, the times that you maybe should have done things but chose not to, and you know you really should have stepped up. Going to God and confessing to him these things requires humility. When we do that, we can do that with a God who loves us, knowing that we are forgiven. Confession can also be with one another. Confession with one another can mean that when you do something that's wrong or you hurt somebody, you just go to them and tell them you're sorry. That is a, really requires humility, and it's hard to do. But when we do that, there's freedom there. The second one is being okay with a lower status. We sort of touched on this with the, the wedding example. But this can really actually stretch on a whole lot of levels. It's humble, it requires humility to accept a lower status when you obey authority. Perhaps I never thought of it that way until I was, until I was working on this sermon. And I thought, yeah, it does, right? Like, it does require humility for us to say, I'm going to follow the rules. I'm going to submit to the authority above me. Also, as an example, is controlling our tongue. It takes humility to not talk and let someone else have a turn talking because you're actually putting them ahead of yourself. It takes humility to hold your tongue instead of saying mean things about people. It requires that you stop and you elevate them and refuse to pull them down. It takes humility, humility when we are okay saying, I'll sit at the back. It's okay if they didn't announce all my great things I've done when they introduced me, or whatever your example might be for that. It's okay to step back. The third one is being generous. Being generous with your time and your money. Being generous with your energy. Richard Foster's a, a writer, and he writes a lot about spiritual practices. And he says the fastest route to humility is to serve others. I would add, 
the fastest route to humility is to serve others in ways that you don't particularly want to do. It's easy to serve when you're saying, I love doing this. I'm happy to serve in this way. It's a little bit harder sometimes when you're asked to serve a need and you just don't want to do it. Maybe it's a rotten, rotten job. <laughs> Someone needs something and it's not, it's not glorious at all. It's just a rough, rotten job. He said, that's the time when you really can see humility come out. And if you're a giver and you're very generous in your giving, that's great. Humility would come when you choose to say, I'm not going to broadcast that. I'm going to keep that anonymous. So those are the challenges to us when we give and when we serve, is to not want to buy into others. We want others to see how good we are at serving, or see how good we are at giving. Living this way is possible when we have a right view of ourselves in relation to God, others, and ourselves, but simply doing a practice doesn't change our hearts. We just can't walk around acting humble. We actually need a heart change. And this reminded me very much of a sermon that um, Leanne preached a while ago when we talked about the kingdom of heaven being like yeast. So I have a little bit of setup to do here, so bear with me. Kingdom is heaven is like yeast. And if you've ever seen someone making bread, and I have to do, shout out to Corey and Neil for preparing this for me. Because I've never made bread. I've never needed bread. You'll notice that in my demonstration. I was also told to put flour down, which I would also not have done. So they may be coaching, they may be coaching me here. Is this the one? Got to do it right or I'll blow the whole thing. Punch it, she said. So this is bread dough, which no one's going to make bread after I touch it. Uh, <laughs> so if you've ever seen someone making bread, you know that they have to knead it, right? And kneading it is doing the action of pushing the dough over and over. They've put all the ingredients in the, in the bowl first. They put the yeast and the salt and whatever else you put in bread. I don't know. I know there's yeast in there, though. And I'm assuming flour. They need, and they need, and they need, but nothing changes. You don't see any difference. It looks exactly the same. Even after they've done all the work, it looks the same. But... When they set the bread aside and leave it, the yeast goes to work and changes it from the inside out. And it rises, and it very much doesn't look the same anymore. And I was thinking about this, and I thought, isn't that just like us? Isn't it just like us when we do practices that require humility? We do them, but it doesn't change us but we still do them. The baker has to continue to knead the bread. Without the step of kneading, the bread's never going to rise. And then the Holy Spirit gets involved. The Holy Spirit comes in and does the work in secret, deep inside, and then 
our hearts are changed. And then we don't have to act humble anymore. We don't have to pretend to be humble and muster up all our humility because God can change us on the inside. Change how we see things. It's like putting on a new, glass, new pair of glasses where everything looks different. We're, we're looking from a position, an attitude, a changed heart of humility. So we don't have to act humble anymore. Over time, God can change us and form us to be humble. And that's a big difference from just doing humble things. But the baker has to need for the yeast to work. And I believe we need to practice humility for the Holy Spirit to change our hearts. Um, I think that's a, 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 this is actually warm. I'm just, there's something interesting about the fact how warm this dough is. <laughs> I know it sort of broke my train of thought, but there must be, I'm sure someone can find a reason why that matters. Um, but I think it's true, right? We do, we do the kneading. We, do the, we practice acts of, that require humility, and the Holy Spirit is the yeast that changes our hearts. And that's really, that's really what we want, right? The good news is, is that despite where we are in our journey, God loves us right where we are. God will transform us as we seek to follow Jesus' teaching every day. The good news is that despite what we hear all around us, despite what we hear in um, the world around us, humility is actually a sign of greatness in the kingdom of God. Talk about topsy-turvy. Humility is actually a sign of, kingdom, of, of greatness in the kingdom of God. And the good news is that while the Jesus way is not always easy, it is always good. Let's pray. God, humility and pride is hard. It's hard to see pride in ourselves. Would you shine a light to us, to each of us, so we can see those unexpected places where we may be carrying pride? Can you give us the courage to bring that to you? and be freed from it? Would you give us the strength to do practices that require humility, even though it's hard? And God, we trust that as we do, your Holy Spirit will change us from the inside out. God, may we be people who see the world differently, who understand who we are, in relation to you and your love for us, how we are to be in relation to others, and how we're to see ourselves each day. Thank you for being our loving and gracious and forgiving and merciful God. In Jesus' name, amen.